an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though tested by fire, might be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that had been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. Sent from heaven, these are things into which angels long to look. The word of the Lord. I forget which way is on. That's better. All right, so this morning we, I got a text from Lem that said, so I have the flu. So thank you to... Micah and Mariah and Nancy and Mike, who led on a whim, <laughs> keeping us going. Um, but yeah, Lem is home, sick with the flu, so we'll, we'll pray with him. If you're visiting, welcome. Thanks for joining us for worship tonight at Redeemer. Uh, we'd love to know that you are here. Uh, so we have uh, on our website, redeemerclt.org, there's a form at the top, connect form. Fill it out. It'll give us a chance to follow up with you um, and be in relationship a little more. So if you want to turn to 1 Peter, we're, this is week three in our 1 Peter series. We're continuing uh, in chapter one. Uh, two weeks ago, we started with the first two verses, which is the greeting, and then we did last week, verses three to nine, and so today we'll focus on verses 10, 11, and 12. But before we do that, we're going to pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, this day. We thank you for the sunshine, even when it is hot that you have uh, made it for uh, us to enjoy. And so we thank you and praise you for allowing us to come into this room together, uh, to be in your presence, uh, to know you, uh, to worship you, um, to know and speak the gospel to one another. So we thank you for all those things and ask that you would be present by your spirit as we look into your word now. And we pray it in your name. Amen. So First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 is where we're going to look. So I don't know if, if you know this or have heard about this, but this past Friday, 
about four, I've seen different estimates. The one that seemed to be the most common was four million. Four million students around the world decided not to go to class. Uh, they're striking for climate change. All over the world, it's pretty amazing. Um, there's a 16-year-old girl named Greta Thunberg. I don't know if you know her name. If you don't, you will soon. She gave a speech this past Monday at the United Nations uh, Climate Change uh, uh, Action Summit. And if you, it's like a three-minute speech. Go and listen to it later, because it's pretty amazing. 16-year-old girl with Asperger's from Sweden giving a speech uh, at the United Nations. Pretty amazing. Um, and she's done a whole bunch of stuff orienting her life around this, this idea of changing the climate. Now, I don't want you to get distracted by your personal view, whatever it is, on the climate. But here's what I wanted to uh, kind of press into a little with Greta. Um, she wrote on her Twitter account three weeks ago, I want you to hear this really carefully, because she started these school strikes about a year ago. It was just her. She stopped going to school on Friday. One year later, there are seven, five, however many millions of people all over the world staying out of school to raise awareness for climate change. This is what she wrote on her Twitter account on August 30th. Before I started school striking, I had no energy, no friends, and I didn't speak to anyone. I just sat alone at home with an eating disorder. All of that is gone now, since I have found a meaning in a world that sometimes seems shallow and meaningless to so many people. It's pretty amazing for a 16-year-old from Sweden to make this sort of leap into meaningfulness in her life. Um, she goes from, as she testifies, at home alone with an eating disorder, didn't speak to anyone, and now she's leading this global movement of five million students to strike every Friday from school for this cause. She has found meaning and purpose in her life. Now, before we dive any deeper into that, I want you to see that we are her. We are all seeking meaning. Like, we want something that makes sense of our life. She's found it in this mission to save the planet via climate change. And all of a sudden, she now has this mission, she has this vision, she has this excitement, she has this purpose, and that has given her this forward momentum. And all of us are looking for meaning in the world. We want to be part of some story that makes sense. Maybe it's trying to make sense of our sort of emotional situation. Some of us, it's logical. We want to kind of understand the way the world works. Some of us want to understand what's out there. Why does the world work the way that it does? But we're searching for meaning. We want a story that makes sense of the world. And in our world right now, in our culture, the best way to do that is for you to find that in yourself. Be true to yourself, express who you are, and that becomes your identity, that becomes your story. You kind of make your own story, right? If you go to people's Instagram accounts, right underneath their picture is this little, like, little box where you get to put anything you want about yourself, and that's sort of the very epicenter of people like, expressing their identity. I'm this, I'm that, I do this, I go to this school, all these identity markers right there in that little box. And so we're constantly looking to identify ourselves in the world, to understand how we fit in with the, some sort of story. Greta, from Sweden, has found it in climate change. All of us need to have meaning. We need to have a story. Things like climate change, things like the schools we go to, things like what church we're a part of, or what community we live in, or what nation, those are all good things, but identifying ourselves what Greta says here, that she's found a meaning in the world, is troubling. And I want to take a minute to dive into that a little bit before we get to the text. I'm going to get to the text, but before we get to these three small verses, we, we need, I want you to see why these three verses are really important. 
Okay, so I want you to I want you to hear some of these different ways that we connect to story, different ways that we seek meaning in our lives. See if any of them connect with you um, in your own life as you have kind of sought to make sense of the world that you live in. So I'm going to go through a list. We're going to look at a couple of these. The first one is right along with Greta is causes. I don't know, environmentalism for her, maybe it's, you know, puppy rescue. So like we, we uh, adopted a dog a few years ago and the lady that ran the puppy rescue, like her entire identity was wrapped up in that rescuing puppies. It was very, she was very committed to it. Maybe it's pro-life, maybe it's fighting cancer. There's causes that we connect with, that, that we jump on board with, that help us, that help provide meaning. They give us direction, they give us energy, they give us something to fight for. And the problem with that, one of the reasons why I'm concerned for people like Greta who are finding meaning in that is that what happens when your cause is solved? What happens when the problem goes away? What happens to your identity if it's wrapped up in the cause? What happens when someone comes along with a much bigger problem? All of a sudden, you start to feel smaller. Your identity starts to feel weaker. Someone has a bigger problem, a more important cause. What happens when you fight for this cause and no one cares? Like you go out there, you pick it on the street, and no one responds. All of a sudden, your identity is sort of being pushed back against because your cause is not being followed by the people around you. Um, I've, one of the uh, authors that I like to read says this about defending causes. He says, there's this merge, uh, moral urgency to defend our cause. And if we're honest, no small part of that urgency involves unarticulated fears about how losing this argument might reflect on our image. We've probably felt that. You care so strongly about something, and if someone doesn't agree, this is why on Facebook you see people who disagree, and then you see people come back like 10 times stronger. It's not because they feel that strong about the cause, it's because all of a sudden their identity is being attacked. They feel like their personal identity, which they've now connected to this cause or this argument, is under attack. So identifying with causes is a dangerous thing. When we attach our identity to something that kind of comes out of us like that, it's wishy-washy. Another one is nationalism or what country we live in. Going along with that is politics. Some, some people attach themselves to a political party that becomes their identity. I am a Democrat. I am independent. I am an American. We, we identify with these things and we put them in and they become something that provides story, that provides meaning for us. The problem is what happens when our political candidate loses? What happens when our country collapses and ceases to exist? Like we don't think about that a lot in our country right now, but a lot of people who were in a civilization, when the civilization collapsed, what happened if their identity was wrapped up in being a, a citizen of that nation or that country? It disappears. When, when we attach ourselves to something that is exclusive, I'm an American and you're not, what that leads to is pride. Something that somebody else can't get in on. I'm a Democrat and you're not. I'm a Republican and you're not. I'm this, I'm that. And we attach ourselves to things in the world and it allows us to kind of draw lines and feel good about ourselves and create identity, but we can't invite other people into that. And it's wishy-washy. So causes, nationalism. Uh, what about family or your bloodline or your race or even your marriage? I watch these Hallmark movies, this line that keeps coming up in these movies that you watch at Christmas. Family is everything. You've heard that line before? Family's great. It's a good thing. But if, if our family becomes the thing that we identify with, what happens when our marriage falls apart? What happens when our family rejects us for some reason? We attach ourselves to family. We find identity in that. I'm a, I'm a fair ball. You teach your kids. You are a, we, this is the way we do things in our house because we are 
this family, you know, our identity, our family identity becomes part of who we are, part of how we tell our story. That's not bad, but if that's our ultimate meaning, what happens when our family falls apart? What happens when there's trouble? When we attach ourselves to something that can fall apart, it's shifting sand, right? Those things can disappear. Our identity can, can break down. Even church can be something that we use to prop up our identity. This is one of the reasons why Lem and I have been a little, um, you know, we have our, it's not up there right now, but we have our little, little Redeemer Church logo. We've, we've been like hesitant to kind of throw our logo on everything and make it a big deal that you're part of Redeemer Church. Because if, if, if you're part of our church, what happens when, um, when our church falls apart? What happens when there's a new or better church down the road? I, I've come to think, having been uh, in Connections Ministry at Carmel for a while, talked to a lot of people that were changing churches, and I really think that a lot of our church shopping, church hopping in our culture, even here in Charlotte, is, is due to identity crises. We don't, when our church does something that we don't like, we, it reflects badly on us, and so now we're worried about our identity, so we go find another church that will help us express our identity better. Right, I, you know, our logo starts to look old, whatever it is. We can use church as a way to express our identity. Last one's the most, maybe the most obvious, and that's just our accomplishments. I talked about this last week, too. We're very accomplishment-oriented. What are you doing in your career or your parenting? What are you doing in your retirement? What have you accomplished in sports? We kind of wrap our identity around these sort of accomplishments. And obviously the question is, if, if your identity is wrapped up in your job, what happens when you get fired? What happens when your project fails? If your identity is wrapped up in your parenting, what happens when your kids reject you or they walk away from the faith or they just never speak to you again? When, when our identity is defined internally by things that we choose or things that we express, you see how wide open this is. So I'll just ask you, kind of, what, what do you typically attach your identity to in the sort of maybe legitimately actually on Facebook or Instagram, but like metaphorically speaking, what do you put in that little box under your picture in your own mind? Who are you? What makes sense of your world, of your life? I want to caution, I'm not saying any of these things are bad. They're not bad. Family is good. Being a citizen of our country is good, and it's okay to like that, promote that. It's okay to be a part of a, of a political party. It's okay to have causes. Causes are good, but... When those things become the main thing that defines how we understand our own story, it's very problematic because those things can fall apart. Maybe you've experienced that already in your life. Maybe you're experiencing it right now. Something that you have put your identity in is cracking. What happens? Now, I say all of that to kind of set up why we need these three verses in 1 Peter and why I think Peter, I'm not, I don't know that Peter was thinking about any of these things when he was writing these three verses, but it's really applicable for how we understand applying these three verses in Peter to our own lives in America in 2019. And what Peter is saying in these three verses, I'm just going to say it and then we'll look at why he's saying this, but what he's saying is that if you're a Christian, because he's writing to Christians, if you're a Christian, you have a bigger story than any of those other things that is able to and must define who you are. 
There is a bigger story than your country. There's a bigger story than your family. There's a bigger story than your cause. There's a bigger story than your job. All of that is good, but there's a bigger story. And Peter says that story is the story that the Bible is telling. The story that the Bible tells is the story that needs to define our lives as individuals and our corporate life as a church. And when we look at the, the story of the Bible, there's a lot of confusion about what the Bible is and what it's for. I grew up um, sort of, I think, thinking of the Bible as like a helpful book of, of moral rules or like a lot of cute stories. Um, some people think of it just as like sayings, a handbook for life. The, the Bible is a storybook that tells a specific story about the world. And Peter is saying, Christians and churches look at the Bible and allow it to be the, be the single story that defines their life. So I want, to see, I want you to see two big things in this, these three verses um, that, that Peter uses to show us that that's true and show us why that's important. So let's look in the text. Uh, we're gonna, I'll just read starting in verse 10. Peter is showing us that the biblical story is the story that we need to allow to shape our lives because the biblical story is our story. Listen, he says, concerning this salvation, he just spent not six verses explaining the hope of salvation. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. That was to be yours. I don't know what you think of when you think of prophets. Maybe you think of Jonah getting, you know, eaten up by a whale. Maybe you think of Isaiah or, you know, I don't know what you think of when you think of a prophet. But when Peter is using the word prophet and when Jews use the word prophet, they're sort of referring to all of the great men and women that we hear about and read about in the Old Testament. And via that, there's, he's referring to the entire story of the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament. So he's basically saying, concerning this salvation, the Old Testament told you about the grace that was to be yours. Saying this story that we read, it's your story. It's your story. He says, he continues on, prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, and he carries down and he says, and it was announced to you. And what he wants the, wants the people that he's writing to to see is that they, as as believers in Asia Minor, in whatever year it was, are part of a bigger story. This hope that he described, he did, the hope just didn't like drop out of heaven from a stork. It's been part of this big intentional story that God is writing. That the message that was in the Old Testament is the same message that's in the New Testament. The message that the prophets, prophets were prophesying, that's the same message that was announced to these people when they heard the good news of Jesus. That this is one big story. One big story. It's an interesting that he says that these prophets, what they did was they searched and inquired carefully, and as they searched, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Again, he repeats, this is your story, what they were doing. That's not a throwaway phrase. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and what Peter is saying is that when he wrote those five books, he was writing them for us to read, for Peter's readers and for us to read. That that's not just for Jews, that's not just for back then, that's for us, it's for now. That is our story. Jesus is speaking in, in, uh, to his disciples in Luke 10, and this is what he says, listen. 
He says, blessed are the eyes, meaning your eyes, disciples, that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not see it, and hear what you hear but did not hear it. In other words, all the things that God was doing and writing, the story that was being told in the Old Testament, it was leading somewhere, and it was leading to us. It was leading to the church, to people who would receive the good news of Jesus and believe it. One big unified story. Concerning this salvation, there's a big story that we can connect to and we need to connect to because it's our story. Now, to illustrate that, I think, as I was trying to understand for myself how to illustrate that, I was thinking of, um, in school, I remember learning about uh, like ancient Greek history, ancient Greek mythology, and you hear it and you read it and it's like, I don't know where to put this. I don't, I don't understand how to think about this. It doesn't mean anything to me. And you translate from that, and you go over and you learn American history, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, this is my story. This is our story. Things that were happening in, the, in what I'm hearing here, those affected me directly. And I think what Peter's saying is that when we read the Old Testament, that's how we should read it, as our history. Not as somebody else's history, not as a story, not as an abstract thing, not as a fairy tale, but as our actual history, the things that made us who we are today, the things that allowed us to be and know what we have today. And he's saying to them, hey, we need that story because if we don't have that, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go find meaning other places. We're going to find it in our citizenship. We're going to find it in our causes. We're going to find it in any of those other things that we talked about. But we need a bigger story, a truer story, a more real story. The story of Scripture is that story because it's our story. Peter places his readers into this giant, cosmic, true, real, unified story. So he wants them to have hope, but he also wants them to have meaning and understand the world in a certain way. So for us, there's two points of application that when we read, when you read the Bible, when you pick this up and you open it up and you turn to 2 Kings chapter 10, do you read it as your history? Or do you read it as something that's outside of you, that's different, that's sort of this abstract, you know, old text? I think the way that we approach reading the Old Testament is super important. And Peter is making super clear to these readers, hey, when you read this, when you look at that, when you look back at Jewish history, he's writing to Gentiles, when you look back at Jewish history, you need to know that that's yours. Don't think about that as someone else's history. Think about that as your history. And when we study the storyline of the Bible, it's often called biblical theology. And this is a guy who wrote a book on biblical theology. And I love the way that he phrases this. He says, we don't merely want to think about the story and the symbols we want to be swept up in them. We want to be identified with them. The biblical storyline is not just an interesting tale. It informs who we are and how we live. Not as a book of rules, but as a story that we are part of. It says it, the story is a way of getting out of the false world and into the real one. A transporter enabling us to inhabit the story of Scripture. Is that the way that you read the Bible? Is that the way that you read the Old Testament? Peter's saying, all of this was written for us. It's our history. There's a lot of momentum right now in um, some corners of American evangelicalism saying that we need 
as Christians, to unhitch is the word that's being used, our faith, from the Old Testament. Get rid of the Old Testament. We don't need that Old Testament. That's not our Testament. Our Testament, our story is the New Testament story. And Peter is very, very opposed to that. <laughs> he, he wants us to know, he wants his readers to know that the Bible that God gave us through the prophets, through the Spirit of God, is our story, the thing that makes us who we are. We can't understand what the church is supposed to be unless we read it in light of the Old Testament. So do you read the Old Testament as your story? It's just a good challenge, good thing to think about. But that's not where Peter leaves it. Okay, he, he wants us to know that the Bible is our story, but he also wants us to know something else. Another incredibly important reason why we need this story in order to understand our lives. He's showing us that it's our story. He's also showing it, us that the biblical story from start to finish is Jesus' story. There's no other place to find Jesus except in this story. This, this is Jesus' story. Listen to the text. He says, concerning this salvation, all the good stuff he just talked about, the prophets searched and inquired carefully... What did they inquire about? They, what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories? The first time I read that sentence, I was like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> so let me just pull out this. Let me just show you some identifiers here. What person or time the spirit of Christ in them? He's saying that Moses and Abraham and Isaac and anyone who wrote the Old Testament, you know who was writing the Old Testament through them? Jesus, the spirit of Christ was there writing the Old Testament through these people. And then he goes on, you see in the second half of the verse, he shows that the New Testament is also written by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't call it the spirit of Christ there, but he's make, making the, connecting the dots. Old Testament, written by Jesus. New Testament, written by Jesus. Both are written by Christ. But then he also says, what were they searching out? They were searching out to know when the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories would occur. So Jesus is writing the story, and he's the content of the story. What, what these people understood or were trying to understand so desperately is this story that we're writing, we don't necessarily understand it all. Where is it pointing? Where is it heading? What is, how is this going to come to pass? And Peter says, Jesus is how it's going to come to pass. If we want to, to have a story that makes sense of our life, if we want all of the good stuff that Peter just talked about, that hope that we talked about last week, if we want that, we have to have it through Jesus. And if we want Jesus, we have to have it through this story. There's a lot of people that want Jesus without the story. There's a lot of parts of this story that people don't want. They don't want genocide in Canaan in the book of Joshua. They don't want the the sexual ethic, they don't want the end times, they don't want the suffering, but they want Jesus, they want the hope, they want all the good stuff, but they don't want to see it inside the story. And Peter says, no, 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 no. The only way to get Jesus is in the story, this story, from beginning to end, Old Testament, New Testament, together, written by Christ, about Christ, for us to receive as our story. Tracking? So, it's our story, and it's Jesus' story. Those are the two big things that Peter wants us to take away, I think, wants his readers to take away from these three verses. There's a lot of other nuance in here that we could talk about, but those are the two big pegs. If we want to make sense of our lives, this is our story, and this is where we find Jesus. Now, 
What does that mean for us? It means a lot of things. Two I want to pick out. The first is specifically about us as a church. Peter's writing to the people who have gathered into churches, and he's telling them, if y'all want to understand your identity as a church, you need this story. You need to connect to it as yours. You need to connect to it as Jesus. Jesus is because it is in the church, in the people who believe, that the story is carried forward. Like for us, we've received this not so that we can just take our hope and run away with it. We are doing, in, in an analogous sense, we are doing for fe- the future church what those prophets did for us, carrying on this, pointing forward the story. As a gathered church, this is why we come and worship and say these things and do these things and sing these things because we need to remember the story. We're preserving this story for the world, in the world. The world does not like this story. The church is where it's, where it's preserved. And it's sort of a crude, I think, pragmatic argument, but I want to make it anyway, is that this is a good reason for being very connected to a church an actual physical local church because it's in the church with the people of God that this story is carried forward and embodied and lived out. If we just see this, if you just put this on your shelf at home and only read it by yourself, it's gonna become very cold and very distant and not alive. It's very, very difficult to see and experience this as your story if you're not with people who are also engaging with it as their story. Being part of a church is so important for connecting to this story. Our souls, we talked about this a few weeks ago, our, the health of our souls, knowing and being connected to Jesus, we need a really big, really true, really Jesus-centered story in order to keep us afloat in our lives. The place to do that is here with God's people who are saying to one another that this is our story and we're, gonna, we're going to embrace this as our own, as Jesus' story. So as you, as you read this on your own, as you engage with it, as you read the prophets, as you hear them spoken, how do you read it? Wayne Grudem says this, I love this, is great about reading it. We should read the Old Testament eagerly, expecting that our hearts will often be stirred to praise when we discover, as a central theme, the sufferings of our Savior on our behalf and the glories of the resultant kingdom of which we are now members. When we read about Christ, the same thing the prophets were reading, they wanted to know when are the sufferings and then the glories of Christ going to take place. That's a, it's an odd story. Suffering through glory, distinctly Christian. Are we looking eagerly to find that? Are we like, you can uncover as you read it, if you read it expectantly, looking for Jesus, you see him everywhere. You see that the story is true. You see that that it applies to you and us and that all of that hope that we talked about last week is in the story. It doesn't just provide this future hope, but it provides meaning in the now. One of the big ways that it does that is that this suffering and glory of Jesus, we are supposed to imitate that. And that's what Peter's setting up for the rest of the book because he's writing to a people who are suffering and persecuted and he wants them to know Jesus, the central character of this story, who wrote it and who it's about, his big thing was suffering than glory. 
if this is going to be our story, what we need to embrace is suffering before glory. And that's what he's calling us as a church into. He's going to spend the rest of his letter, now that he's set this up with these three, with his greeting, with his hope, and with this story, he's setting up to walk through what does it look like to be a church that embraces suffering and then glory, knowing that this is Jesus' story. The next couple weeks, the next couple verses, next couple chapters in Peter, every single one of them has an Old Testament passage that he references to define what the church is. He refuses to give up on the Old Testament as our story. So I wanted to kind of dive into that a little bit and make sure we understand that so as we go into the next few weeks, we can be okay with looking into the Old Testament to understand who we are now. It's very easy to just push it off and say, let's just read Ephesians over and over. We need the entire thing to understand who Jesus is and who we are. We need the biblical story. It would be wrong to end any other way than Peter does, I think. <laughs> and that's with this little comment that he says that even these are things into which even angels long to look. It's just a reminder that this is a cosmic story. This isn't just about us trying to make do. This is God's intentional, planned, cosmic story that we know better than the angels because we are experiencing it. They're like, the word there is like peering into, like looking in from heaven, like, wow, what is going on down there? I really want to know that. That's the glory that Peter sees in the story and the ability that it has to transcend everything and give us meaning and purpose. Yeah, let's pray. Father, we thank you for Peter calling our attention to um, the story. Thank you for all of uh, the many uh, men, women, peoples that you have been with, that you have taught, that you have spoken through um, to reveal your word, to reveal Christ. I pray that as we look around us, that we will see a world and be animated by uh, your story, that we will know and believe um, in all that you teach us through your word. I pray that you give us um, faith, build us up where we are falling down and teach us um, to long after you. Father, we also uh, come to you today, and we know and acknowledge that everything we have comes from you, that you are the one who fills us with good things, that our hearts and our lives overflow with your abundance. And so with thanksgiving, Father, we bring to you our time and talents and our tithes. We ask that you use these gifts that you have given us to feed others as we have been fed, to serve others as we have been served, to bless others as we have been blessed through Jesus Christ, our Lord.